Good morning, Monrovia, good afternoon, Tbilisi, and good evening, CM Reap from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Morocco's efforts to claim Western Sahara and China's newest spy station. It's all coming up. morning, John. How are you? Well, uh, I, I'm doing well, Ethan. Um, but as you know, I was in D.C. Uh, early last week, uh, and I escaped just before smoke Mageddon hit, which is the term smoke I've Mageddon. just come up with. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to stick, but uh, the most more, more important question is, how are you? Smoke Mageddon, I think that would have stuck if you had come up with it a couple days ago. But now I guess the smoke is gone. It was a, it was a nice enough weekend. And Smoke Mageddon's not going to catch on anymore, which is a huge bummer for your brand. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'll have to. I'll, I'll be ready with it when it inevitably <laughs> happens again next summer. <laughs> Very true. Well, I'm feeling a lot better. Thanks for asking. But John, we've got a pretty complicated one to start out here today that I think is really going to test your diplomatic mettle. Let's do it. Um, yeah. So, well, this this is that story about um, Africa's northwest corner. Uh, or the disputed region of Western Sahara, as as many might know it. Um, and if people have their phones handy, you might want to take a look at this on Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever you use. Um, but for those without, this is it's a territory on on the Atlantic Ocean coast in the northwest corner of Africa, just to the southwest of Morocco. It's a really, really, really big chunk of land, but it has a tiny population. Um, in fact, it's the second most sparsely populated populated country in the world after Mongolia. Uh, the listeners wouldn't have been able to see what you just did on camera, of course, but you were doing uh, air, little air quotes, little finger quotes when you said country. <laughs> you also said territory, region. What's with all this coded language? Uh, it's very intentional, Ethan, but I've got to remember sometimes that this is a podcast, right? <laughs> but before we get to the news, um, let me tell you why I, I kind of swapped between those terms and used and used air quotes. Um, so the Western Sahara is is designated by the UN as a non-self-governing territory. There are the air quotes again. Exactly. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> Hands down, John. <laughs> so that, that essentially means it has two competing claims to sovereignty over the area. The first claim is from the Sahrawi, and this is an ethnic group that has historically lived in the area, um, and they're represented by a political and a military group called the Polisario Front. And the other claim to the area is from Morocco, which has essentially occupied Western Sahara, the region, country, area, whatever you want to call it, uh, since the Spanish relinquished their colonial possessions there in uh, 1975. Now, the international community has been a little ambiguous about what it thinks about the region. Um, for example, the UN passed a resolution back in the 70s saying that it considers the Polisario Front to be the legitimate representative of the Sahrawi people and that they have a right to self-determination. Now, that sounds quite forceful, but if you think about it, it actually doesn't say anything about who has sovereignty over the land. Um, as it now stands, around 80% of the territory is under Moroccan administration, and the other 20% is under the Polisario's kind of de facto administration. Both sides claim the entire territory, though. That's important to remember. Um, and in fact, it wasn't until 2020, speaking of international recognition of the region, it wasn't until 2020, um, which is 45 years after Morocco first took control of the Western Sahara, Sahara after Spain relinquished uh, their control, 2020 was the first time that any country actually recognized Morocco's claim to sovereignty over the area. So there we go. There's some complicated context. Yeah, very complicated. Well, who who was the country that 
recognized Morocco's claim. It was actually you. Oh, wait. To be more charitable on a Monday, your country, Ethan, uh, the U.S. Oh, phew, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the U.S. agreed to recognize Moroccan claims to the Western Sahara in exchange for Moroccan recognition of Israel. Probably the biggest and most high-profile piece of Trump administration's Abraham Accords. I'm not sure if listeners remember the, the, the accords that were struck um, a couple of years back. And it wasn't at all without controversy. First of all, it took place in December of 2020, which was a couple of weeks before the Trump administration was, was removed from office. Um, and second of all, it was viewed by a lot of folks as a sacrifice of America's principles, i.e. kind of the right to self-determination and, and you know, the ability to choose um, your government, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was given up, what critics would say, for the sake of political expediency. Um, in fact, Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, he of the superb walrus moustache, um, he spent much of his career working to resolve this issue. And he said just days after the announcement that his former boss had thrown the Sahrawi under the bus and he called on Biden to reverse that decision um, immediately. Uh, and also a Trump ally in the Senate said he that that Trump had traded away the rights of a voiceless people. So it was pretty pretty controversial at the time, but the Biden administration has kept the policy in place um, and now relations between Israel and Morocco are growing, you know, pretty quickly. I mean, John, this is this is all fascinating stuff, but but why are we talking about this today? Yeah, well, I I kind of alluded to it there. It's um Israel and Morocco have a growing relationship and it now looks like that Israel is about to become just the second country to recognize Morocco's claims over Western Sahara. And, and why would they do that? So the agreement to normalize relations uh, between Morocco and Israel, the, the agreement that was part of the Abraham Accords I alluded to earlier, it wasn't anything more than a normalization agreement. And, that, and that's kind of like international relations speak for, hey, let's try to stop hating each other. Um, in the future kind of agreement. You know, international relations can be weird like that. But the answer is essentially that they don't have full diplomatic relations yet. You know, an embassy, an ambassador, that kind of stuff. So even though their trade ties have grown and each side has hosted the other's top-ranking officials, Israel wants full diplomatic relations. The whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> um, an exchange, obviously. They're offering probably the number one thing that Morocco wants. I mean, it sounds like it would be good for Morocco, of course, but of all countries, I doubt Israel's endorsement here would carry a ton of weight. Why does this even really matter? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, you know, the US decision in 2020 wasn't followed by an avalanche of other countries doing the same. So I don't think we can expect the Israeli decision to to move the needle all that much. Um, and, and as we alluded to before, the international community has been pretty clear that they're not going to take sides. They, you know, have that am ambiguous kind of policy on it. And yes, there are some countries that maintain dim, dil, uh, diplomatic relations with the Polisario Front, uh, the Sahrawi people. Um, and there are others, obviously, who recognize Mor Morocco's jurisdiction over the 80% of the Western Sahara that it controls. But the status of the whole of Western Sahara has been just kept intentionally ambiguous. And I think that ambigu uh, ambiguity kind of helps Morocco, right? Um, you know, it has the bigger army, the bigger economy. It has membership in you know, all the international bodies, the UN and so on. So whether or not Western Sahara ever becomes a de jure part of Morocco, it's still a de facto part. Um, and, you know, maybe that's good enough for Morocco. John, this sounds uh, not entirely unlike the situation in Israel. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a it's an interesting observation, and and there are certainly similarities. You know, I think it would make for a really interesting bit of reporting 
uh, to, to kind of delve into why we hear so much about the plight of the Palestinians and yet so little about the Sahrawis, right? Um, you know, and speaking of things that no one really talks about, certainly I didn't know about it um, until we started researching this story. Um, I'd urge people just to look up the berm, or as it's called by the Moroccans, the Moroccan Western Sahara Wall. This is this is a 2,700-kilometre wall of sand that Morocco built to keep the Polisario Front and, you know, the guerrilla fighters in the Polisario Front out of their part of Western Sahara. 2,700 kilometres is literally the same length as, as London to Kiev, and and it's impenetrable. It's it's just wild. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, I, I digress. Ultimately, I think this story overall is just a, a really good example, Ethan, of the complexity of international relations. We often think or are told by by certain people that there are perfect and, you know, easy solutions to these kinds of huge problems. Um, you know, for example, while Morocco and Israel normalizing relations and increasing trade ties is, is definitely a positive for the region. And, and, I, and I guess the whole world, you know, more countries getting along with each other is, is a good thing. We have to remember that it comes at the cost of a disenfranchised, you know, overlooked people who are struggling to establish their home homeland. So, you know, this stuff just isn't easy. Today's show is sponsored by Todoist. Todoist is the easiest way to organize your work and your life. All you have to do is download the app to help build detailed to-do lists to keep on top of everything you need to do and to help delegate tasks to coworkers. I use it every day to keep on top of my schedule. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. Next up, John, we're hearing reports that a U.S. adversary is building a top secret facility in Cuba, capable of conducting operations that could seriously undermine American national security. It sounds made up, doesn't it? But uh, you're exactly right. Uh, only this time Ray Charles, Elvis and the Beach Boys aren't on the Billboard Top 100. <laughs> anyway, the story here that you're alluding to uh, so subtly is that the Wall Street Journal reported last week um, that there's a new plan to bring a Chinese espionage facility to the island of Cuba, just 96 miles away from the nearest point uh, in Florida. Now, we should note here that uh, Chinese, Cuban and American officials have either refused to verify the report or they've strongly denounced it. Uh, the Cuban embassy in Washington called it, and I'm quoting, totally mendacious and unfounded information. But, uh, you know, I think when you, you, you hear the strength of that denial and then the non-denials by the US and China, there's a, there's a suggestion at least that there's something going on here, Ethan. So a few questions here. First of all, what would this facility do exactly. Yeah, so so the report calls it an eavesdropping facility, which I think is a pretty kind of evocative and, and amusing term. Almost like the Chinese intelligence officials are leaning up against America's door to to listen in on on, on conversations and scuttlebutt. <laughs> uh, but what what are eavesdropping in this case you know means is signals intelligence or SIGINT as it's known in the spy business. Um, and, that, and that just refers to the techniques and technologies used to intercept communications like emails, phone calls, satellite transmissions, and, and so on. And for reasons that I f fully admit that I don't understand, but intuitively seem to make sense to me, uh, the closer a signals intelligence facility can get to its target, the easier it is to collect information. Uh, plus, the location in Cuba will help Chinese officials monitor shipping patterns off the coast of, of America. You sort of preempted my next question, which was going to be, you know, why pick Cuba? Well, no, I think there's 
more to the why Cuba question than than just its proximity to the U.S. Um, there are actually two other really good reasons that come to mind about why Cuba might play host to this side. I mean, first, Cuba is a famously co- uh, communist country <laughs> and has for decades positioned itself as a revolutionary and anti-colonial country. Uh, and it's been willing to challenge, at least in rhetoric, um, America's hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, we joked a little bit at the start of this story about the the Cuban missile crisis, but it does go to show that Cuba loves to kind of court and flirt with U.S. adversaries, and it's done so for for a long time. Um, But the second reason why Cuba might be interested in this kind of arrangement is that they've been under brutal U.S. sanctions since the Cuban missile crisis in 1962. and they're fairly desperate for economic relief. Uh, the Wall Street Journal report suggests that China is going to extend Cuba an economic lifeline in exchange for this facility. So I think that probably explains why they're, they're interested in the deal. John, I, I wasn't alive for the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I don't want to presume, but I don't think you were either. No, you're not. You're, you're shaking your head. OK, so well, it sounds like it wasn't an especially cheery time. Are we being set up here to relive it? I mean, it was in 1962, for God's sake. You've got to be reasonable. I might have been born just before the... And I, I, let me emphasize, just before the Berlin Wall came down. But you need to be kinder to me there. I'm, I'm an old man, but I'm not that old. <laughs> but no, uh, your your question uh, after your insult, uh, it, it, it's, it's a reasonable concern, right? I think it's just impossible not to draw those parallels. Um, I think China will justify the facility in the same way that the Soviet Union did back back then. Uh, you know, you put your nuclear weapons and all your intelligence collecting facilities near us so we can do the same to you. Um, and, and I think the US won't be happy about that to, to, you know, state the obvious. I think as scary as the Cuban Missile Crisis was, um, and again, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, Ethan. <laughs> but um, we, we need to remember that it ultimately ended with a negotiated settlement, right? Um, the US agreed to remove nuclear weapons from Turkey and Italy in exchange for the Soviets getting their nukes out of Cuba. Um, and then the two countries set up a, a defense hotline, um, the red telephone that we talked about the other day. So, you know, maybe a little bit of a scare is what both the US and China need to get back to talking. Um you know, it sure would be nice if they could just talk without the possibility of bringing on World War Three. But here we are. Well, thanks, John. Forgive me for the insults. You look great. <laughs> Thank you, Ethan. For your age. <laughs> here are a couple of the stories we're tracking today. Officials in Bangladesh have closed thousands of schools in response to the most prolonged heat wave since the country's independence in 1971. The high temperatures are leading to factory closures and unprecedented electricity cuts for millions of people. In a dramatic scene in Brussels last week, Italy acceded to a major overhaul of EU migration policy. Under the New Deal, countries will choose between accepting asylum seekers or contributing money to help safe third-party countries like Tunisia build migration facilities. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, democracies, we have to say, across the world are suffering from a lack of participation. It's a crisis. But a couple of politicians in Japan may have cracked the code to get voters more engaged. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what they did. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday. Wednesday.